So our next up, we are going to have Ben Gibbons read from our scriptures for today and the core of what the teaching will be about. If anyone else is interested in lecturing like this, reading our, our passage, please talk to me. This is something that I'm working to do some more of. Yes. Good morning, everyone. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on the very word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. So we're going to explore this passage for a few weeks, and uh, the whole squad has touched on it. I thought in, in a beautiful way last week that drew on some of their work involving attachment and some of those sorts of ideas, and, and the idea that being securely attached to God helps to have, help us to have peace and helps us to move in the power of the Holy Spirit to drive out evil, to drive out demonic influence. And this passage, we're going to spend a little more time on it too. This week, I'm going to spend some time on the background, and we're going to get into everybody's favorite book, which is Numbers. Because, <laughs> because it relates in just such beautiful ways. And this, I think this teaching might be really exciting for some of us. It's super exciting for me. This is what makes me love the Bible and want to do Bible studies, is this sort of thing. And it might be sort of challenging for some people too. And so if it is, uh, the way I'm going to approach Scripture is as something that is at least as complicated 
and at least as capable of inviting us into thinking in a, in a complex way as the story of the tortoise and the hare. You can imagine a world where you start off and, you know, there's, there's people who have only a section of the story, and the hare says, I'm going to crush you, I'm obviously way faster than you, and the tortoise says, well, I guess I'll try my best. And then you, you cut the end of the story, and you can imagine a world where people have just really thought about that text for a long time, and there's a debate about where that story goes. And there's the Harrists, who are the majority faction, who think, obviously, the text is revealing to us that the hare is faster. We know that the hare wins, and it is teaching us, don't be a, a slowpoke loser. That's one interpretation. But perhaps there's a suggestion in the tortoise saying that he's going to at least try his best, that, that maybe the story is meant to teach something else if we follow through to some ending that we have lost to the story. Just imagine, what if it's that kind of a text? And I think those scriptures are that kind of a text. And I think that this history of Christian interpretation involves saying that we believe that it is and that there is a fullness to how to interpret the scriptures that is revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to start by reading a little bit of Colossians. Let's see if my phone will cooperate. Um, or it won't, you know, that's okay. I'll just uh, do it from memory. Sorry, that wouldn't go... Too well, I would have to paraphrase. Okay. He, the Father, has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is starting with verse 14. He, so then the Son, he the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Notice that we should be thinking here about the way these texts interact. We might even be thinking about the firstborn in Egypt and, and the Exodus narrative there. But here Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created through things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. So everything is created in him and through him and for him, in case you are wondering if there's any prepositions you can't apply. <laughs> all the, we want all the prepositions. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, repeating this word, from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Thank you, God, for more of your word. And so, based on this understanding of Jesus as the fullness of the revelation of God, in a sense we would say if we have the first part of the story of the tortoise and the hare. We have the concluding part in Jesus that tells us actually how this goes. And I'm not suggesting that the stories in the Bible are fables. I'm suggesting that they should be able to have at least as much complexity in the way we appreciate them as a children's fable. And so we get to numbers. And here's why I'm going to get to numbers. Just look at the first verse here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And the, the word there is diabolo, which also can mean slanderer or accuser. I like the translation of slanderer the best. I think it highlights features of what this 
evil figure is doing in order to try to build power and to manipulate people, lying about other people or accusing people in ways that are malicious in order to uh, manipulate other people. He was led there by the slanderer. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is where if I were teaching youth group or kids, I would say, so the 40 days, is that a reference to, do we get the reference? And, and some of them might get it. And if they didn't, then I could say, that's great, because now you're going to learn something. So the 40 days is generally not, 40 days in the wilderness is obviously a reference to, actually, I'm going to count to three and tell me, uh, uh, you might say some different words, but just shout something you think it might be a reference to. One, two, three. Yes, I heard various versions of 40 years in the wilderness, Exodus, right? The, the escaping, uh, there's, this is the Passover is connected to all this stuff too, right? Yeah, we know this, right? We can catch this reference. And Matthew's audience would have caught this reference even more easily than we do. So here's an interesting fun fact. In Numbers, we see that the reference to 40 years in the wilderness connects to 40 days, specifically. There's actually a 40-day period here in Numbers that is referenced. Raise your hand if you happen to know what that is. See, now you're going to learn something. So they spied, the, the spies spied out the land. Caleb the dog boy, his name means dog. Caleb the dog boy and Joshua spied out the land. And Joshua is basically the same name as Jesus. It's Yeshua, all right? So Caleb and this other Yeshua guy, Yehushua, um, had spied out the land for 40 days, and they came back, and here's what they said. And they were trying to persuade the people then that we can actually conquer the land. And they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. This is Numbers 14, 8, now on to 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us, do not fear them. So in order to say that the people of the land pose no threat, basically they say they're bread, we can, we can eat them up. We can devour those people alive, so to speak. And so they're trying to encourage the people. And there's something, so there's a, who here knows improv rules like yes and? Are you familiar with yes and improv rules? So I, I'm not going to say this is like an ultimate law of biblical hermeneutics, but it's actually a nice way into the approach. So when you're doing improv or like imaginative play, which I love to do, you can say uh, somebody suggests something that they're doing, that they're, you know, that they're acting out. And then if you want to modify that, or even if you don't like what they did, you don't say, no, 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 don't do that. We're going to cancel that out. We're going to erase that part. And all the guys, we're going to rewind and we're going to redo it. You don't do that. You say yes and and you can recontextualize what somebody is doing and draw out different potential and meaning in it. And I think there's a yes and thing that's happening already in Numbers 14 that then continues into Matthew 4. So here's what I think is happening. Yes, Caleb and Joshua are wise about something, that we should trust God and not be controlled by fear, that we should be brave. Yes, and they're rewarded in the passage for this. And I think this is an insight that we say yes and to. But then look what happens. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord says to Moses, 
How long will these people despise me, and how long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. That's some serious disattachment language. And I will make of you a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. Wait, so here God offers Moses to glorify Moses above his people. And of course Moses, because he's a good, pious man, says, yes, God, whatever you say, I would never think to question God. And so God wiped out the people of Israel, and Moses started over with a whole new people. Sometimes, oh, sorry, I'm lying to you. Lord, forgive me. Sometimes we lie. We act like that's what the story does. We, and we, we have a kind of theology where we act like we can't think about these texts and think about God the way Moses responds. But here's what actually happens. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For in your might, you brought up this people from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, have, uh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people all at one time, this is going to be really embarrassing for you. The, then the nations who have heard about you will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He swore to give them that he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. And now therefore, let the power of the Lord be great in the way that you promised when you spoke, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses negotiates with God, and as part of the negotiating posture, he is working within the, the covenantal framework that God has given him up to this point. And he says, you've promised to carry these people out. In, uh, in uh, Exodus 32, which is a nice study alongside of this, Moses actually appeals to the Abrahamic covenant to sort of uh, also get God to change God's mind in the text. This is what's happening. This is, if, if you don't like this, you might want to find some different sacred scriptures, but these are our ones, and I love them. <clears throat> Forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt, from Egypt, until now, because they came out of Egypt. Then the Lord said, so here's the thing. So, so Moses' negotiating posture appeals to God's covenant, and then he says, but I know you're a tough God. I'm not asking you to not be a tough God. And I know that as a tough God, you want to visit your punishment intergenerationally. And you can do that. You can punish us to the third and fourth generation, because I know, I'm, I'm going to tell you what you're into, God. You're into that. So I want you to do that. But then watch what happens, right? Then the Lord said, I do forgive, just as you asked. Nevertheless, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the people who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt in the, in the wilderness, and yet have tested me these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their ancestors. None of those who despised me shall see. Now hold on, so there's a nevertheless here. Even, so Moses said, punish us to the third and fourth generation. And God says, I'm going to give you what you ask, except for this. Except for this. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me wholeheartedly, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, 
turned tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. And so God also, and this also then works out, right? And then the prophets later, we will have prophets say, say no more. The, the God, God punishes people to future generations. They actually contradict Moses' appeal here, scripturally, in, in revelations from God. So what's happening here? How do we make sense of a text like this, especially next to something like Matthew 4, which is clearly inviting us to think about it? And I think the, the answer that has been given by Christians from even before we had discerned what the canon of Scripture was, all the way through uh, figures like Calvin, and as well as many Catholics, so both Protestants and Catholics have often agreed on this, on up to today, is that the Scripture is some kind of a progressive revelation meaning that it reveals an evolving and developing understanding of God. It is at least as complex as the tortoise and the hare. Actually, but it's, it's like that, but like on ultra steroids. It's, it's inviting us to look at this unfolding and deepening understanding of God and to really think through the implications of it. And there's this whole tradition of rabbinic interpretation, which I think is just beautiful, that draws on Moses' example here and in Exodus 32, and the example of Abraham as heroes of the faith, where if we hear God, or what we think is God, or we understand God to be saying something that is unjust, what we should do is we should continue to hear and heed, because what we understood God to be doing a minute ago, like, Abraham, go kill your son, might not what we find God is ultimately doing if we continue to hear and heed. No, I, I didn't want you to kill your son. Actually, this has become an anti-child sacrifice story. And thank God, Abraham kept hearing and heeding God, but didn't just keep repeating what he thought he had heard before. Similarly, Moses, Moses himself, all right, so we're going to get, ah, oh, thank you for that. That's very encouraging. So Moses himself embodies this in such a cool way. So Moses also doesn't get to enter into the Holy Land. He lives 120 years, which is the fullest possible extent of human life after Eden. He lives an incredibly full life. And the story about why is just fascinating and how random it seems, but how deep it is if you like, let yourself get past how it sounds kind of random. Early on, God says, Moses, strike the stone and we'll give you water. So Moses does that. But before he enters the Holy Land, God says, Moses, speak to the stone and you'll have water. And what does Moses do? He's, he, he's not hearing and heeding. He hasn't continued to listen to what God is saying, what God is doing now. And so he just does the same old thing that he did before. And then God's like, I'm not gonna cuss. I mean, it's, you know, it's a curse. God curses him uh, and says, you don't get to enter the land because you weren't hearing and heeding. When I was moving you from violently going about the way you interact with the world, to interacting in my speaking way. Isn't that interesting? I love that. And, and the way that Moses then, so you have Moses and Abraham as these greatest heroes of the faith, manifesting these patterns where we can start to explore and ask these really profound questions. And I just love it. I love the Hebrew Bible. I believe it is the sacred word of God. And I'm so grateful that in the early debates within the church, uh, there was a figure named Marcion who said, obviously there's a tension here between the Hebrew Bible and God is love. There's, there's a tension here. And Marcion wanted to say, get rid of this stuff, because obviously it's teaching something different, and that was actually a different God. I think that's terrible. And, and you actually can't understand Matthew with its references that it's making and, the, and what it's wanting you to do without the Hebrew Bible. We are so fortunate 
that the Orthodox Christians, as they came to call themselves, preserved these sacred scriptures so that we could understand the New Testament too. And so think about this. Now, with all of that background in mind, all those questions and all that wondering, and, and think about where these stories might be leading us. Now I'm going to tell you the story of the one who is the express image of God. Now I'm going to tell you, in a sense, the end of this story. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the slanderer. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the slanderer is trying to do what politicians of all sorts have always tried to do, which is tell you that there's a way to get power through manipulating people, especially through slandering people and accusing people and doing these sorts of things. And if you do that, you're going to get bread, which, which also represents wealth. I, uh, I love the song Poncho and Lefty. And, uh, you know, Lefty ends up living in a cheap hotel. If you've ever heard this song, it's about two bandits, right? And uh, where he got, and he ends up in Cleveland, where he got the bread to go, ain't nobody know, right? Bread also works as money, right? <laughs> so do we work with the slanderer to get bread? Or, as Jesus then does, so Jesus first rejects this. And so this is the beginning of the account that we have in Matthew. But... At the end, we realize that Jesus not only refuses to work with the slanderer to get bread, and he also doesn't refer to the people of the land as bread that he could gobble up. Instead, he offers himself as the bread. He totally, deeply, radically completes the story. He doesn't cancel it out. He says, yes, and here's the real bread. I'm the bread. And when we take this bread and enter into the life of Jesus, and enter his kingdom, and his way of doing things, and his reign, first we just, we form a really secure attachment with God, and we're able to form a secure attachment based on unconditional love and grace. And then, once we get to the coming on the mount, which is coming next uh, in Matthew 5, when Jesus urges us to share with the poor around us, and to do that, it doesn't have to be out of a sense of guilt or shame. We don't have to be manipulated into it. It is that this flows through us and pours out of us as also literal bread that we share with people. Uh, we have a couple of meal trains coming up in our church with new births and things like that and injuries with um, uh, our blessed sister uh, Brenda has uh, broken her foot. And so there are a lot of opportunities to do some of that. We're also hoping to help the Al Goals move this coming Saturday. They are the Syrian family who we support. And if I um, I'm going to uh, harass a targeted group of people who have indicated they're interested in being harassed for things like this um, about that. But if you're interested in getting on that list, it's a great list to be on. Uh, feel free to come up to me as well. But I, actually, I think it's going to be a beautiful opportunity to help them move. And I hope and intend that we can break bread with them. And part of the reason, last week I mentioned we were going to do it a little later. We talked with the goals, and it will be Ramadan. And part of the reason we're doing it now is both to make it easier and also so that hopefully we can break bread with them when we move. And so when we take this bread of life, we are transformed and we become God's bread for the world in a way that at least partially reflects the way Jesus is the bread here. And so we're going to continue with this passage over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to leave some for Rachel so she has some, some material from the passage to work with next week. And I just want to mention one other thing. So what I've done here in terms of taking this text and setting it next to numbers, 
and comparing them and letting the texts talk to each other. This is also an ancient rule of, uh, this is rude. So unlike my uh, yes and improv rule, which I just made up, um, <laughs> but it reflects something. An actual rule of interpretation that characterized uh, Matthew's community and the early church is that it, you are supposed to look at like cases and look for similar judgments. You're supposed to be comparing these kinds of texts and thinking about them in this way. And so this is also what the Bible Project does a ton of. It does beautiful work on it. And we live in a moment where there's tons of Bible study that's informed by those principles that I am just so incredibly excited about. And I hope like, you could catch some of my excitement about and love for scripture. This is also related to the way these texts are designed to teach legal thinking and legal reasoning to ancient people in Israel and Judah. This is, this is that you can discern the spirit of the matter. And this is part of what it means to judge not by appearances, but to judge lightly, that you're able to understand the general principles that are being communicated. And so if anyone in our, like any youth in our church, and I know there's one youth who is interested in studying law and uh, working for justice through law, if anyone is interested in that, I just want to encourage you in that and also encourage you to explore scripture as something that is a deep insight into the whole tradition of how humans have thought about law. And there's just tons of wisdom in that. And so I want to commend scripture to you as well in that way and also commend our awesome youth to you because they're amazing. So we are going to move into communion soon, but I would like to leave the mic open for a good five minutes. Now there's something, so there's a thing in the history of the vineyard where we drew on Quaker traditions that helped form us, where there's a tradition of silence, and where people would wait, and they would wait for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, as long as it takes for the Holy Spirit to show up in some big way. And, I, and that's cool. Like I, I think there's, God has moved in that in all kinds of powerful ways. And in our context, in our place right now, uh, I at least am super sensitive to church pressure tactics. And I have seen church pressure tactics, and I'm not saying those were church pressure tactics, but I'm saying in our context right now, I can easily understand if me saying we're going to wait on the Holy Spirit feels like a pressure tactic. And I want to say that it's not. Uh, and I want to draw on some of our old Quaker heritage, which is they would gather and sit in silence. And even if that's all that happens, we trust that the Holy Spirit is working in people's hearts in all kinds of ways. Also, if somebody wants to come up and share a word from God, or share something, or they want to say, Dan, actually, I think you're teaching, uh, maybe I can challenge you on that. Actually, if you feel like the Holy Spirit's calling you to do that, then go for it. Um, anything you want, we're open to any way that we think the Holy Spirit might be moving, whether it's saying or not saying for each of us. But I'm going to go ahead and give us a solid five minutes for whatever. Come Holy Spirit.
Spirit said yes. Um, I was reading just randomly in 1 Corinthians this morning, you guys, and I just it just blessed me so much. I just want to share it. So, so first of all, 1 Corinthians, Paul's like, you know, really telling off a naughty church, but people that are loved by Christ, right? And so he's talking about love and how much like the, the, body, the body of Christ is so beautiful and so diverse. And that's 12. That's the end of 12. And then he says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I just love it. If we don't have love, we have nothing. So thank you, Lord. I just felt like the Lord was um, reminding me of Dallas Willard, who's a devotional writer that I love, and um, he was the first person to introduce to, to me or to my understanding the whole idea of living more um, instead of what would Jesus do, more like what would Jesus do if he was me in my situation with my set of circumstances. And um, just thinking about <clears throat> frustrations at work for me in, in particular and how um, the letter of the law is followed and not the spirit of the law. And just um, the whole, I, I just felt like the Lord was saying to me um, that um, we have the freedom for new applications in the situations that we face for um, you know, old interpretations in new applications. And um, so that's, that's it. I will try to keep this short. I had a very weird week um, about, I don't know, eight, nine days ago, my eyeball just decided to stop eyeballing. <laughs> I got a, some weird infection, went to the doctor twice. They're like, no, no, no. Um, spending money and time. My life was interrupted. Um, and I was like, not now. Like, is there ever a good time? So um, I will fast forward. I have a re very weird job. I work in a consignment store. I was a teacher for many years. That was the timer. <laughs> One of those jobs that you're like, why? What am I doing, right? So I'm in the store, and a woman walks in, walks around the store for a while, overhears a conversation that I'm having while I'm calling pharmacies. Do you have this thing? Do you have this thing? 
she walks up to me and says, can I pray for you? <laughs> I was like, um, I guess so, right? Like, what's the, well, you have to say yes to that, right? Um, but where does this happen? Where does this happen? Right, right. Um, so I don't work in a church is what I'm trying to say. Like, I don't work in a Christian school or, you know, the can I pray for you question doesn't come up a whole lot in a clothing store. So, um, although it should. So she just, she stops and, and prays for me. And I embraced the weirdness and the awkwardness and um, wasn't really sure where to go in my mind, but I tried to calm my spirit. And her name was Mary. I was like, are you an angel? Like, are you even trying to disguise your angelness? Like, hey, Mary. And so another woman walked into the store, also named Mary. I'm like, ah, they knew each other and had this conversation, then talked about me. Anyway, it was strange. <laughs> and um, I want to say, like, when the prayer was over, I could see, but it wasn't like that. But um, by today, I am much better, I would say, 96%. I'm doing a lot of this these days. But um, what I wanted to communicate after that whole weird story is that in her prayer, she didn't focus on my eye. She didn't focus on the physical. She just kept saying over and over, God wants you to know how much he loves you. God wants you to know how much he loves you. And like, I, I'm trying to hold it together because I'm at work and um, she leaves the store and I just sobbed and sobbed. Maybe I cleared out my tear duct, I, I don't know. <laughs> but it was so weird that it had to have been just, you know, divine intervention because that's how it seems like God operates, but that was my week, and I don't really know how to, anyway, God doesn't, isn't just in a box, right? Like, God goes to clothing stores, and God follows us, because God wants us, us to know how much he loves us. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. I, so I want to amplify something. So part of what I'm doing is exploring the literary depth and complexity of scriptures here. And sometimes people hear that and they think, are you saying you don't think these things happened? And I always tell people, I, my name is uh, Daniel, and my like, life verse is, uh, and I was born on 7-11, and like, one of my very favorite verses in the Bible is Daniel 7-11, and yet I exist. And like weird, I really believe that weird stuff happens, that this creation is the, is, is the real story that God is telling, and that scripture reveals the bones of that story and the core reality of that story to us. And I think sometimes God, you know, brings both Marys. There's always discussions about both the Marys too, right? Um, God, sometimes God brings both Marys to remind us that just because something is incredibly dense and meaningful and even literarily rich, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And our lives can be like that too. Um, so, uh, moving into communion. So, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, yeah, and if the band would like to come up, I'm, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, Jesus, thank you for dropping yourselves into our world for us. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we continue to do this as an invitation to walk in his way and live in his kingdom. Uh, we practice open communion here. These crackers are gluten-free. Those are carefully packaged, and the wine is actually grape juice. So it is open in all of those ways, and to anyone who is interested in 
exploring or committing to the way of Jesus, please feel free to participate. Come Holy Spirit, please fill our celebration of your feast.